Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have, and debunking some of the myths around our health. And it's a great pleasure today to be talking to Professor Susan Davis, Making Sense of the Menopause. Hello, Susan. Oh, hi, Joyce. Lovely to be involved and part of this. I'm looking so forward to talking to you and breaking many, many myths, I am sure. So Susan is director at Monash University Women's Health Research Programme. She's head of the Women's Endocrine Clinic, Alfred Hospital Melbourne, and consultant endocrinologist at the Cabrini Medical Centre. Now, Prof Davis is an internationally recognised expert on sex hormones and ageing. I first met her at the British Menopause Society conference a few years ago, where she gave an absolutely brilliant keynote lecture. So she talks about menopause and its health sequelae. Her clinical trials program has led to the paradigm shifts in the understanding of testosterone in women, with current trials examining the role of hormones on cardiometabolic health, cognition, musculoskeletal health, and sexual function. So I think people listening to this in the UK will know that testosterone and menopause is a very, very hot topic. So we are going to talk about this today. Susan has received many awards, too many for me to go through today, and she is past president of the International Menopause Society and the Australian Menopause Society. So without further ado, let's get started. So Susan, can we first talk about your career? It's really hugely impressive. So tell us more about what made you become a doctor and why you decided to work on hormones. So I'll be honest, the reason I studied medicine is, and you've got to wind back you know, quite a few years, is that I felt it was an occupation where I would always be able to support myself and my family under whatever circumstances. And also because it was incredibly interesting, I thought I would never get bored. So that's why I did medicine. Why did I study hormones? Because I couldn't decide which direction to go in. And the thing about hormones is they affect every part of your body. So it meant I sort of could keep doing a bit of cardiology and a bit of neurology and a bit of every, you know, it mixes in with everything. And and even though my specific area is hormones, I have to keep up to date with sort of the whole body because hormones act in every cell. They are, they are. And as we will discuss today, menopause is certainly a topic which spans all those different areas that, that you mentioned. So let's move on to making sense of the menopause. It seems that in many countries, especially in the UK, we have become very muddled of many things around the menopause. And we've I think we've got a problem with many myths and incorrect information about the menopause. So today I want to talk to you because you really do make sense of this. Um, so let's start at the beginning. And this hopefully should not be too controversial, but I did hear a different definition recently, which I'll talk about afterwards. So let's just start at the beginning. What do you class as the menopause? And in your view, the menopause, the perimenopause and the postmenopause, those definitions. So originally menopause was the last menstrual period a woman had. And that would be all very well if we went back to hundreds of years ago where women didn't have hysterectomies and couldn't take the pill, etc. So because so many things mask the last menstrual period, 
In my mind, menopause is the irreversible loss of ovarian function so that the ovaries can no longer produce a health an egg each month or at all. The So for many women, say you'd had a hysterectomy at 40, the ovaries might work until you're 48. And that is when you get the hot flashes or night sweats, or, but it's when the ovaries stop doing their job. The actual menopause is 12 months after that occurs. So it's a retro, well, the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to muddle everyone up. The menopause is when the ovaries stop during the job, but we don't diagnose that for 12 months. In a woman who's having periods, we want to make sure a woman has had 12 months without a period. In a woman who has had, say, hysterectomy and she gets all the classic symptoms, the diagnosis is a little bit woolly, but ideally about 12 months after those symptoms perhaps start. It's a bit woolly, though. The perimenopause starts at the beginning of the ovaries becoming erratic in their function. And so for women with who are having periods, their periods will become erratic. And it ends 12 months after the final menstrual bleed, which again becomes sort of academic if a woman goes into menopause not having regular periods. So it's very tricky to really hone it down in someone who enters the menopause either on the contraceptive pill, having irregular periods, having the lining of her uterus wiped out and other causes of not regular periods. Excellent. And after the periods have stopped or the ovaries have stopped, would you say a woman then is in postmenopause? Is that the words you would use? Yes. So women often say to me, oh, my menopause seems to be going on forever. Menopause is a moment in time when the ovaries stop working. So if a woman has them removed surgically, that is the menopause. Every minute of the life after that becomes a postmenopause pretty well. I, I totally agree. And I've heard people recently who have been, one woman was 10 years since she had a period, and she said about that she was still menopausal. Um, and somebody else told me that in America, there's some people now who don't use the term postmenopause. So they're saying any woman whose periods have stopped or her ovaries have stopped is menopausal. And so I was like, oh my goodness, we're now messing these terms up even more. And I think the reason was because they feel the word postmenopause doesn't sound embracing. Um, but I think we need to embrace the words. And I feel really reluctant to keep changing these definitions. Um, and and in, the, in, the, in the UK, we often talk about perimenopause as menopause. And I thought, oh my goodness, if we start talking of postmenopause as menopause, we are going to get really, really confused. Any thoughts about that? I can agree more. And indeed, oh no, I agree. And 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 the postmenopause is life after the ovaries have stopped working. And as I said, in a woman who goes into the menopause with regular cycles, the postmenopause is really twelve months after her ovaries have stopped working by absolute definition. But but really, it's when, you know, if you're 60 years of age, you are postmenopausal. If you're 70, you're postmenopausal. You're not still menopausal or perimenopausal. Thank you. Thank you. 
I love being postmenopausal. I've embraced the word, and I, I think I think we we just need to. It's just words, so we we can make them what we want to make them. Now, now your expertise is hormones, and obviously this is very much about hormones. So tell us what the hormones are doing at this at these three stages. So once a woman's menstrual cycle becomes erratic or even if a woman has had a hysterectomy, I'm going to use that as this sort of other example, when one enters the menopause transition, the perimenopause, the hormone production by the ovaries becomes chaotic and remains relatively chaotic and unpredictable until the ovaries stop functioning. And some people would describe it best as puberty in reverse, and often that's something that's much easier to understand. And that is the ovaries at the beginning are erratic until they settle down and at the end they're erratic between being regular and stopping. I I exactly use that term often giving talks in schools and the kids have just or still going through puberty. That's how I describe it, puberty in reverse. So um, do you think that this is a disease or a disorder, that women going through this, this is one of the other myths that we have, big myths in the UK. It's, there's quite a lot online about it. And when, when sometimes I mention it, people say, who who would say that? But it is there. It is there outside and, and on the web. And I've done a debate about it before, which I narrowly lost, where we said that this house believes that menopause is a hormone deficiency disorder. So is it a disorder? Menopause is a hormone deficiency disorder if women go through it early, early in life. So women who go through, lose their ovarian function, say in their 20s, 30s, early 40s, that's earlier than would be typical. And for those women, they are hormone deficient relative to other women of their age. And that, that is a condition that ideally we would always treat with hormones unless there's a special reason not to. For women who go through menopause at the average age, which in, is around the world, around the age of 50, 51, give or take a year or two, it's a biologically natural ageing event. But it's an ageing event that can have consequences in terms particularly of um, metabolic changes and bone loss. So while it is a natural event, it is something that can have effects on people's women's health for the next you know 20 30 40 years of their life or longer so sometimes it needs treatment for symptoms and sometimes it need one needs treatment for bone protection um, to prevent fragility fracture in the future but it's not a disease you can't catch it <laughs> good <laughs> um let's go back to the age because i, I think we've made a bit of a problem with with this age 51. So in the UK, um, when I've asked women to tell us their experience of the of the perimenopause and menopause, the one report we've heard a lot is that they've gone to their GP when they've been in their 40s, very much perimenopausal, and their GP said, oh, no, you're too young, you're not 51 yet. So you said that the the, the menopause happens at age 51. But is there an age range between that and when can the perimenopause actually actually start? So when I say the average age at menopause, that is an 
average, but then there's a broad um, spread around that. And again, we have to look at different cultures, ethnicities, environments. So whereas in the UK, for example, amongst women of European descent, the average age is around 50, 51. The average age, for example, in India is more like 46, whereas we would consider 46 early for a woman of European ancestry. So the average age can be really anywhere from probably, we used to always say 45 to 55, but it's spanning out further. It's probably anywhere between 40 and, and the late 50s. So I can see women who go through a fairly normal menopause at 46 and a fairly normal menopause at 58. They're the outer limits, really, on a, in people of European ancestry. Um, but I think we have to be cautious of not over-defining by age. And we need to be particularly aware that women can go through um, loss of ovarian function at quite a young age and need to be aware of that. Yes, I think that's, that's such an important message. I often speak to women in their 40s, some of them in their you know, mid-40s, and they're definitely experiencing perimenopause. And then they say, oh, I'm too young. It's, it's a really, really common myth um, about age. So thank you so much for clarifying that. And you mentioned uh, different cultures. And speaking to various people, it's so interesting that in some cultures, there's not even a word for menopause. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but there's a lot of cultures that don't, that don't have a word for it. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Um, Let's move on to the symptoms. Well, for example, in, uh, no, carry on. Sorry, we've got a bit of a lag. So, yeah, carry I on. I was going to say, no, for example, in Australian Indigenous Aboriginal women, there's no word because they never lived through menopause. And so there's no, while there's a whole culture around, say, childbirth, there's no whole culture or a, a management system in that culture for menopause because they never had it. Yeah. That's true. And we, we have had a look at ages and because some people are saying, oh, women never, never lived, but certainly in other, some other cultures, maybe the ones with the word, um, even though the average age of women dying might have been in their 40s, there were women, that, that was again the, an average, there were many women who lived past their menopause. Um, so, may, yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons why. That's, a, that's an interesting um, concept. So let, let's move on to symptoms. So. Um, you did mention that um, the periods changing was one of the indicators of, of the perimenopause. Lots of women I've spoken to, I've, I've been doing a lot of discussions with, with women in, in surveys and focus groups um, over the last few years, and they've said that changes in their periods wasn't one of the first things that they noticed. Um, I had wondered whether we could develop an app and when women saw changes in their periods, then that, that would alert them. But it does seem that for many women, they get some of the other symptoms before changes in their periods. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's very tricky because if a woman is having a regular 28-day cycle or a 32-day cycle, it's, you know, she's always had 32-day cycle, I think it's very dangerous to go down the path and say, oh, her fatigue came before her cycle changed. I mean, if you've got a very regular cycle that hasn't changed, then your hormones are doing what they should be doing. And I think it's very, a lot of the time, the symptoms that women are reporting 
are in fact nothing to do with menopause but are due to other factors in their life that occur at midlife. And I think it's very dangerous to attribute menopause symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms when the hormonal function of the ovaries have not yet changed. That's really interesting. And it brings us on to the symptoms because we definitely have in the UK, we have some very public figures who blame everything on on the menopause. Um, you know, we've got weight gain, suicide, you know, the list, the list is endless. So it doesn't seem that people agree what's a menopause symptom or perimenopause symptom. What would you say are the main perimenopause symptoms? So we have spent a lot of time agonizing over this recently. And it doesn't matter how you slice it or dice it. The ones that are the hallmarks of the menopause are the change in um, menstrual blood flow getting more heavier or lighter or the cycles becoming shorter or longer, hot flushes and or night sweats, irritability and mood change, but absolutely not clinical depression. It's the irritability and the, and the anxiety sort of mood change and, you know, teariness, that sort of thing, as opposed to just depression. Vaginal dryness is a classic symptom and that can lead to low sexual interest because of the vaginal dryness. But um, symptoms like, you know, brain fog that's being touted around and fatigue and headache, they can be due to so many other factors that they are not indisputable menopausal symptoms. They overlap with other things. I think that's a, a problem because I think if a woman may have depression or migraines due to another reason and the doctor just says, oh, well, it's it's your menopause. Um, I, I, a friend of mine recently went to A&E and had some cognitive problems and she was told, oh, it's your menopause. I think that that could be really dangerous because that could be masking something much more important to try and figure out and treat in that woman. So I think we have to be very careful about that. Yes, I think that um, there is indeed a real danger of inappropriately attributing a whole array, a whole shopping list of symptoms to menopause when actually they're due to other things. Yeah. So that leads us very nicely onto your one of, one of your many studies. So you have completed a study of the sexual well-being of 7,000 young Australian women. And the main finding was very depressing, that half of the women studied experienced personal distress related to sex. So sex is a, is a big one around the perimenopause and the changes. You've already mentioned vaginal dryness. Um, so how does our... Um, libido change or does it change during the perimenopause and menopause? So, and, and I think this is a really important thing that we've just looked at, that we tend to look at around the menopause. And this is one of the things about the low mood in the menopause. And I've just pulled out all our data um, that around the time of menopause, low mood does increase. And around 15% of women 
will have moderate to severe depressive symptoms. But that number's about 30% in women aged 18 to 40. So in fact, at midlife, women are actually better off than they were when they were younger. So in fact, sexual distress is highest in younger women. And it goes down a little bit around the time of menopause at midlife. And then it goes down further in older women. Low libido increases at midlife. So the distress around sex is in the younger women. The low libido occurs more in the midlife women. And and low libido associated with concern is about one in three women at midlife. So that's where that does peak. But I think we have to keep looking at the health at midlife compared to women before and after midlife. And it's not always as bad as women think. So let's move on to treatment of the menopause. Now, in in the UK, we call it hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Um, I am trying, I'm not alone in trying to get that changed. Um, And I know you use the term uh, menopause hormone therapy. And that's because the replacement is controversial because we shouldn't have maybe maybe we shouldn't have those hormones in our body post-menopause so replacing them is is a, is a tricky word so I'm in all my papers now I'm going to use um, menopause hormone therapy and also for those people who are, are transitioning transitioning their gender um, we can we can really muddle things up if we're, if we're saying hormone replacement therapy so I think we, we need to be careful again about our language so What's, what's your views about hormone, uh, uh, men, uh, menopausal hormone therapy and, and why is it important? And do you think it's for everybody? So our research suggests that about one in three women have moderate to severe symptoms and there are two primary indications for using menopausal hormone therapy. One is the treatment of moderate to severely bothersome symptoms that the woman wants managed. And the other is to, in a subset, to prevent further bone loss and high risk of fracture. And menopausal hormone therapy, estrogen, irrefutably will prevent fracture in women in later life by the fact that it preserves bone mass and stops the menopause-related loss of bone. But that's not for everybody. So the idea that every woman should be on menopausal hormone therapy is absurd because not everyone needs it. Why do you think that is being suggested in the UK? It, re- it really is being suggested as the elixir of life. There's a lot of celebrities, I know you've talked about this before, the celebrities promoting it, that it will make you look younger and you'll be healthier and all your libido will be back and you'll be full of energy. But but we, we know that for many women it just doesn't doesn't do that and then what happens is that women are feeling um well if they don't take it they're feeling that they're missing out um and those that do take it and it's not working then they're they're like why isn't this not working so there's been a lot of controversy in the uk with some doctors giving higher and higher doses and um many people from the british menopause have spoken out about this so do you think that hormone therapy doesn't you know you said not all women will need it I totally agree um do you think increasing the dose is helpful or dangerous so 
we have a lot of information about the safety of hormone therapy, but anybody who goes out and prescribes it and tells a woman this is completely 100% safe is probably telling porcupines because we do not have sufficient information to be absolutely watertight confident that it has absolutely got no relationship with breast cancer, for example. Do I think that taking standard researched doses of estrogen with or without progestogen increases breast cancer risk significantly? No. If if it affects breast cancer risk using standard doses, the effects will probably be absolutely marginal. But we, when you start prescribing high doses beyond which have been studied, I have absolutely no idea what that does to breast cancer risk. I have no idea what that does to uterine cancer risk. So women are using high doses of estrogen with best guess doses of progestogen to protect their uterus. We may see as a consequence from some of this explosion of high dose therapy, um, a tsunami of breast and uterine cancer in the next decade. I have no idea. I think it's, to me, that is human experimentation outside of proper protocols. But if the doses we have used for many years and we understand and have been researched to use, probably this is very safe. This is why I always say that people like you and um, Anis Mukherjee, you're the people we should be listening to. You're the endocrinologist. You're the people that have studied hormones and know this. So your words, and you say the same as, as Anise, um, you know, we, this is what we've got to listen to, not, you know, other other types of doctors who specialise in different things and they know, they know about their area. And this is such important information. And, and I agree, we're, we're using women as guinea pigs. And another big one in the UK, let's delve deeper. So testosterone, it's become like a fad. Women are rubbing testosterone on their legs um, and they're saying it's going to improve their energy, improve improve their, their sex drive and make them wonderful. Um, they're all getting hairy legs. <laughs> um, but what are you what you, know, you are one of the world leaders on testosterone and the menopause. So please tell us, break these myths about testosterone. Well, testosterone does not change at menopause. That's the first thing. The second thing is the only evidence of benefit of testosterone for women at this point in time is for postmenopausal women who have experienced recent onset loss of sexual interest and for which they want to do something about. And the benefit has only ever been shown to be moderate. And I've been using testosterone in women since the mid-80s, but there we've done research into the effects on mood and well-being and it has not been to be shown to be better than placebo on mood or well-being one of our studies showed a marginal statistically significant improvement on short-term memory but nothing else but it was so marginal it could be a chance finding and that's never been repeated in another study so women should not be taking it for energy or cognition or it is not the elixir of youth it is simply something that may improve libido we are doing studies to look at effects on muscle and bone now but the evidence that will improve muscle strength or bone strength is completely lacking 
Thank you. It's it's really clear. I think all of the things you've said are so clear and you know, they're, they're what I've read in the scientific literature. And I'm a scientist and, and you, you're a scientist and a clinician. And I I just find it amazing that we are confusing women so much with this misinformation. We have to go with the science and the studies that have been done. We, we do clinical research. We get data. We report that to the, the community. And I, I just find it so frustrating when... There are other health professionals that totally ignore this and they're changing everything. And and we've and as we've said, they're, they're using women as guinea pigs and not really giving them the right information. And there's many of us that are very, very, very frustrated by this. And, and these hormones, are, they're so powerful. And the images that I use when I'm giving a talk about this is, um, so I'm a cold water swimmer. And I've got a picture of us swimming in a big turbulent wave. You can't even see me. I'm under the wave. And for me, that's what I felt it was like having a menstrual cycle. And I've talked to many women about their menstrual cycle. And it's it's turbulent. You're, you, you don't know one day whether your hormones are going to be up or down. And you might feel great around the middle of your cycle when you're ovulating. But then you might have premenstrual syndrome, then Obviously, when you have your period, some women feel very down. So it's a very turbulent time. And for me, post-menopause, um, I, I, don't, I haven't taken HRT. Um, I, I put a picture of a very calm sea. The sea is just flat and blue and beautiful. And that's how I personally feel. Now, I'm giving an unscientific view of the N of one at the moment. Um, but I've heard many women say that they feel that they are now in a, in a much more wonderful place of their life. Their, their menstrual cycle stopped, their periods have stopped, and they do feel very calm and level and very, very different and very motivated now in, in a very different way. And they're enjoying this second spring, uh, this wonderful time of their life post-menopause. And, and I hear women say that whether they're on HRT, HRT or, sorry, MHT uh, or not, what do you think about life post-menopause? Can it be a wonderful, embracing time of our lives? Well, as I said, about 70% of women never have really significant symptoms. But I think it's really important to recognise, irrespective of hormone therapy, that menopause is a time when our health risks do change. So cholesterol levels change, diabetes risk changes, bone is lost. So it is a really important time to take a good hard look at your health. I think that if there are two sides of the coin, many women do experience what you've described, but then the women who are having a terrible time shouldn't feel that they're bad, they're poor copers because they're having a bad time. There are some women who absolutely unconditionally need hormone therapy because their lives are so rubbish. Initially, they have they can't sleep, they can't, you know, they're exhausted because of the hot flushes and night sweats, they're agitated, they're irritable, they're dysfunctional, and they do need hormones. But um, so I think we have to be understanding that everybody's different. And that's why this one size fits all of give everybody hormones is wrong. And the one size fits all after the Women's Health Initiative publicity that nobody should have hormones is wrong. And we have to try and understand each person's needs, we should 
In my belief, we treat with what we understand to be safe rather than giving ridiculous doses and experimenting on everybody. We need to be make, make sure that we're treating the right thing so we're not treating um, headaches with hormones when the headaches could be due to another cause or depression with hormones when a woman truly has depression and then just dosing them up to their eyeballs with hormones. Um, so I think it's it's complicated. And the other thing that's problematic is life's difficult. So menopause is happening to women at a time when they ha might have low work satisfaction, they might feel really pressured between um, still children at home, caring for older people, a whole range of things as financial insecurity, <clears throat> wanting to give up their job but, but looking at their retirement fund. And so it's a difficult time of life for women too. So we've got to try and sort all that out and then decide what's best to help people. Yes, I, I totally agree that the, the big issue is that, well, not, it's not an issue. We are all individual. Uh, some some of my friends get upset with me always talking about how wonderful life can be post-menopause. And they said, but it's not like that for me. So I definitely would not undermine those women who are struggling. Um, what I what I am trying to do is motivate those women, uh, every woman. And we've painted such a negative picture of women post-menopause oh you would have you know 100 years ago you would have been dead and you shouldn't even be here and um very few other animals have or species have a, a menopause and um you're gonna have you know become this dried up old hag you know you know so um i am working the the other way at the extreme well well yes some women will struggle but we can, I think we can, if we are motivated and think positively and absolutely, as you said, look after our well-being. It's so, so important. And I see women who um, are still drinking a lot. They're not exercising. They're not eating well. And that's certainly not, not going to help. So I am certainly an extreme of saying we can have a wonderful time, but I want to encourage women to try and get through this. Um, however they need to and and really think about this positive time of their life hopefully um and some of the issues as you talked about our health changes post-menopause and certainly the diseases of aging uh become very much more prevalent and we've got dementia we've got heart disease you've already mentioned osteoporosis so one of the pushes in the UK for everyone to take um, MHT is that people say that if you take it, it will decrease your risk of dementia, heart disease and osteoporosis. And, and you've said that for some people with osteoporosis at high risk, it will do that. But overall, for the general population, how do you feel about hormone therapy and the possible decrease in these diseases of ageing? I don't believe that hormone therapy should be used to prevent chronic disease because there's evidence that it will make a meaningful difference for people is, is lacking. If you want to prevent cardiovascular disease, the single most effective thing you can do is manage blood pressure, exercise, normal body weight. I mean, the single thing any person from any age but midlife particularly onwards 
is physical activity, healthy diet and healthy body weight. And that is what will prevent heart disease, diabetes, weight-related cancers, you know, breast cancer, uterine cancer, they're all related to carrying excess body fat. So the single thing people can do is to be healthy. And MHT is not a magic bullet and should not be described as that. And people who are claiming these benefits are not being honest or true to the published literature of what we know. You know, we know it does not have a really profound, meaningful difference. You've got to treat blood pressure, healthy diet, healthy weight, etc. Totally agree. I always start with talking about our well-being, and it's so so important. And one of the podcasts I was on, we were talking about how women are lucky that, in a way, that we've got this wake-up call in midlife. This big event that we're going to go through is is a wake up call. So, okay, if you haven't been looking after your well-being, now's the chance. And men don't get that. Um, so for us, I think it's a, it's sort of a bell ringing in our head to think, okay, let's, if, we, if, we're, if we're not being very healthy, we are, you know, we've only got one way to go. Um, let's, let's try and change that and start really looking after our well-being. And, and I've seen so many people, so many women who've done things like give up alcohol, increase their exercise and they felt fantastic so I think we really need to encourage women I think it's difficult because some women feel they don't have the time um, or they don't have the energy to to do that so I think motivating women around this time would, would be really helpful and um, just to finish off now have you heard anyone say the title of the, the podcast why didn't anyone tell me this and what did they say what did they ask I think often um, women will say, why didn't anyone tell me this regarding um, perhaps mood symptoms at menopause? They didn't realise that sudden waves of anxiety and, and panic could actually be menopausal or that um, muscle joints and aches and pains were menopausal symptoms, which they can be for some women. But as we discussed before, you've got to make sure they're not due to other things. So that would be the, the main questions that, or the comments that women would refer it to with respect to menopause in discussions with me. So what we're doing in the UK is we've just announced last week we are working on a national menopause education and support program. So um, you, I'm sure you have this in Australia. When someone's pregnant, uh, the couple can go to um, normally the local local hospital and they have some lessons in what to expect during their pregnancy and the delivery. Um, and also what's great about those uh, pregnancy classes is they, they support you with other people who are going through the same life situation as you. So we wanted to use that model in the UK and we wanted to develop a, a program, maybe, for example, an eight-week program where women going through the menopause can meet other women going through the menopause and they can support each other and talk to each other about the symptoms they're going through and also give us a chance to teach them the evidence-based information about the menopause. So exactly what we've talked about today, what, what's the definitions, the symptoms, treatments. Um, we, we're probably going to start with well-being and end with well-being and post-menopause. Um, we're at the beginning. We have 
got our first bit of funding to do this. Um, and what we're doing now, we, as I always say, we could all all sit in our offices and write this program, but we're engaging the public and stakeholders through workshops and focus groups. And we've already learned so much just in, in the short time since we've announced this with people making suggestions about, um, yes, we need obviously need a, a, a section on premature menopause, surgical menopause, uh, different cultures, neurodiversity, the LGBT community will have different experiences. So we're listening to everybody at the moment so we can get this program built in. And so we're very, very excited. It's a huge piece of work, um, but this is how we want to do it. Because at the moment, there's lots of bits of training. People, you know, Online, people can go and read different things and do different courses. But we want to make this a very um, evidence-based. It's run through, the, it'll be run through our university. It's been, well, it's been developed through our university. How, how we spin it out will be uh, varied. Um, but uh, what, what do you think about us setting up this sort of program? I think it's very important and I think it's very timely in at, at this stage of life. And I think it shouldn't all be about the symptoms of the menopause but very much focused on what is happening to women at this life stage, as you've we both just talked about. So it's about the um, the health consequences of this change, how it's going to affect women. It's about women understanding everything from nothing. Symptoms could be everything from nothing to everything. Um, and also how to manage their lives in terms of, of stress and anxiety in their lives because it's, as I said, more often than not, the symptoms that are attributed to menopause are actually due to plenty of other things. And, and managing those other things is important. Totally. And that's one reason why just trying to put on some MHT will not help. <laughs> and, you know, if those other problems are there, they're going to still be there, even if you um, top up your hormones. Um, so exactly. <laughs> with with my guests, we, 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 everyone's got such different careers and that they've done such amazing work. So I wanted to know what motivates you to do your work. So I really um, like trying to find out the truth and I I have a great, I'm very fortunate to have an interface between seeing patients and doing research. So I'll see a patient with a problem and I don't have an answer and then I'll recall that I've seen another patient with that problem before or subsequently I'll see someone and I try to find out what we should be doing to help that problem and then trying to do the research that really gives an evidence base so that how I care for my patients is based on good logic and evidence, not just a good idea. And so my research motivates my patient care and my patient care motivates my research. And then just people just motivate me. Do you know that's a that's a really fantastic answer about the the beauty of your job between the clinical and the research, which is so so important because we can imagine those two being totally separate and people on the you know locked away in their labs doing all this research which has has no clinical relevance. 
and then the clinicians being in the office treating everything and not understanding the research. So marrying those two together is is so so important. And and thank you for all your brilliant studies and your future studies um, that have really helped answer some of these questions. So my last questions are a little bit more out of the box. So I want to know what makes people happy. So what makes you happy and where is your happy place? Oh, I think what makes me happy is um, in, in professionally, I get incredible joy out of one, having the patient who comes in and telling me that they feel better. Two, I love mentoring and seeing a fire in the belly of people I'm mentoring, my PhD students and postdocs. Um, I get a buzz out of successful, out of finding something that will make a difference. And then I get enormous joy out of my family and dear friends and doing things with them. And do you have a happy place? Oh, do we have a glitch there? And, and do you have a happy place, Susan? My happy place. My happy place is probably just being outdoors, doing things outdoors, whether it be in the mountains or at the beach, or but outdoors. Well said from a, an Australian. <laughs> we always say they have such a wonderful outdoor life, um, which I, I do as well. I love, love being outside. And the very last question, what advice would you give your younger self? Just to trust intuition. Follow your heart, follow your dreams. Fantastic. On that very positive note, thank you very much, Susan. You've really have debunked many of the myths that we're hearing in the UK. And I know that you've been misquoted a few times. We've had some emails um, when I've seen something um, in the UK press and yeah, it's, it's a, it's very frustrating and I love it that we've got menopause on the table and we're discussing this so much more in the UK, but with that, we've got the problem that there's so many myths that are really being perpetuated. And I think we're doing women a, a big injustice. So thank you so much for making many of these questions, all of these questions, very, very clear. Thank you, Susan. Great to talk to you. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for the time, Joyce. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.